with you this afternoon. Uh, my name is Andrew. So there's one of the pastors here and have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures this afternoon. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab them. Turn them open to John chapter 15. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, uh, don't sweat it. Know that every Bible comes with a table of contents. In the beginning of the Bible, you can utilize that resource to navigate this big book to find your way to the Gospel of John. Uh, you're looking for chapter 15. Just hang out in verse 1. That's what we'll uh, be looking at today as we start this new series titled Inhabit. And the idea behind this new series is for us to kind of zero in on the essence of the Christian life, to zero in on the essence of gospel spirituality. Because so many of us, when we step into the Christian life or when we describe the Christian life to others, we give the impression that Christianity is all about living for Jesus. And we'll say, well, I'm a Christian, therefore I'm living for Jesus or I'm living for Christ. But there's a lot of problems with centering your Christianity on your ability to live for Christ, several problems, one of which is that living for Christ is exhausting. Uh, if you've walked with Jesus for any amount of time, if you've tried to live the Christian life for any amount of years, you know that there has been seasons and stretches where you have grown weary, you have grown tired, you have uh, grown doubtful, and you've second-guessed this whole idea. Should I live for Christ? I, I'm so tired, I'm so exhausted. Years ago, there was a book, not years ago, but a few years ago, uh, a book was written that kind of issued a clarion call for Christians in this country to uh, live for Christ. And it was a much-needed book. It was a very helpful book in many ways. And in this book, uh, there was a story told about a couple who took that call seriously, and they began to rearrange their lives in an effort to live for Christ. But not long after that book was published, an uh, interview was given to this couple, and they found that their efforts were just running them ragged, that they were growing very tired and exhausted. And in the interview, this is what was said. The husband said, what I didn't know until recently is how exhausting and discouraging it is to try and obey Christ on my own. I got to where I didn't want to go to church anymore. I couldn't look at a painting of the nativity scene without feeling bitter and tired. As I tried to live for Christ, I began to realize every, even more than before, that I'm not capable of being obedient to Christ on my own. They were experiencing this burnout. They were coming to an understanding that trying to live for Christ is exhausting. But not only is trying to live for Christ exhausting, it's also ineffective. If you've ever tried to engage the Christian life on the, under the power and the resources of your own will, of your own reason, of your own strength, you're going to find that to be a very ineffective approach to living out your faith and to being about the things that Jesus is about. There's a guy by the name of David Brooks who wrote a different book. It was called The Social Animal. And he gets after the human condition and he's talking about kind of how we're wired, what motivates and compels people, just human beings, to, to do things differently or to make changes that count. And in this book, this is what he said. He said, you know, both reason and will are obviously important in making moral decisions and exercising self-control, but neither of these character models has proven very effective. You can tell people not to eat the french fry. You can give pamphlets about the risks of obesity. You can deliver sermons urging them to exercise self-control and not eat the fry. And in their non-hungry state, most people will vow not to eat it. But when their hungry self arises, their well-intentioned self fades, and they eat the french fry. See, most diets fail because the conscious forces of reason and will are simply not powerful enough to consistently subdue unconscious urges. The evidence suggests reason and will are like muscles, and they are not particularly strong muscles. In some cases, and in the right circumstances... They can resist temptation and control the impulses, but in many cases, they are too weak to impose self-discipline by themselves. 
He's saying your reason and your will are ineffective if that's what you base your Christian life on. If you boil the Christian life to the sentence that Christianity is all about trying to live for Jesus, you will find that to be a very ineffective approach. So not only is it exhausting, not only is it ineffective, trying to live for Christ, you're going to find here in this chapter, it's impossible. When you look at verse 5 of chapter 15, Jesus makes this crazy statement. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, nothing there doesn't mean nothing in a literal sense, you know. Uh, Apart from Jesus, you can get dressed, right? Apart from a right relationship with Christ, you can go get a job. You can nail an interview. You can pursue that girl and get her to go on a date with you. There, There are things that you can do. Nothing doesn't mean nothing in a literal, strict sense here. But what he is saying is that anything, if you want to do anything that lasts, if you want to do anything that has ultimate eternal significance, if you want to experience life change that can carry you from this world and into the next world, that's something you cannot do apart from Christ. And so trying to live for Christ then becomes an impossibility. For apart from Christ, we can do nothing. Now, there's a lot of things I want for you as a pastor of this church. A lot of things I want for each and every one of you in this expression as well as in our North expression and in our West Seattle expression. I don't know if I'm pointing in the right directions or not. But there's a lot of things I want for the people of this church. If you're a married couple, I want you to be effective in loving and serving one another. And of illustrating the gospel in the way that you relate to one another. As parents, I want you to be effective in discipling your children and raising them up with an awareness of who Jesus is. And what he lived for, what he died for, and what he rose from the grave for. You know, as students, I I want to see your passion for the gospel uh, to compel you into the future so that when you think about the future, you're not just thinking about you and your career trajectory. You're thinking about the trajectory of the gospel and the kingdom of God in this world. For those of you who may be artists, I want you to effectively take the raw materials of, of the created order. I want you to take music and melody, language and and color, and I want you to arrange them in ways that would promote truth and promote goodness and promote beauty in the world. I want you to reflect the beauty of Jesus and the art that you create. And then, of course, as singles, I want to see you effectively displaying the sufficiency of Christ. That people could look at your life and see, you know, that, that, that person's understanding of Jesus seems to be enough for them. That Jesus is satisfying their soul, no matter what season or stretch of life that they may find themselves in. And then, of course, as a church, I want to see us effectively magnify and multiply the gospel through Seattle to the ends of the earth. I want to see lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships all around us. These are things that I want to see. But if those things are going to be seen in us and through us, you understand it. It's not going to happen because you and I try really hard. It's not going to happen because we try to uh, live for Christ together. The only way anything that lasts is going to happen, anything that's effective is going to take root in us and through us and around us, is if you and I learn how to live in Christ. You see, there's a big difference between living for Christ and living in Christ and the essence of the the Christian life. The essence of gospel spirituality, of what our lives is all about, it's not trying to live for Christ, it's trying to live, it's learning how to live in Christ. This is what John chapter 15 is all about. And we're going to start this series titled Inhabit because uh, we're going to kind of take a slow stroll through these, first seven, these 17 verses over the course of the next several weeks. Just a slow stroll to come to an understanding of the power that comes when we live in Christ and we stop trying to live 
for Christ. As you read the first 17 verses of this chapter, you're going to see the word in pop up about 14 times. In fact, over the next several weeks, as you come across the word in, underline it, circle it, make note of it, because this passage is about the power that comes when we live in Christ and we stop living for Christ. And what I love about this passage is that this comes in a stretch in John's gospel where Jesus is saying goodbye. Things are about to change. He's been walking with his disciples physically, in person, for three and a half years. He's about to go to the cross where he would give up his life and He knows that after his crucifixion comes his resurrection, and then he's just going to keep rising, and he's going to ascend and take his seat at the right hand of the throne of the Father, where he will reign and rule over all things. And so he's getting his disciples ready for that day. He's saying, I'm about to physically leave this world, but don't sweat it. It is better for me to go than to stay. And the reason, he says, it's better for him to go than to stay is because he will then give his spirit to his people. And as you read through these several chapters towards the end of the Gospel of John, you're going to discover that it is far better for Jesus, for the Spirit of Christ to be inside of you than it is for Jesus to be beside you physically. That's counterintuitive. We don't normally think like that. We think, well, I'd be a better Christian if Jesus was sitting right here in this room physically. I'd be able to follow him better if I could see him and interact with him if he was physically beside me. But the whole point of Jesus' goodbye in these chapters in John, the whole point of the stretch is for him to say, look, it's better for me to go because you will be far better off when my spirit comes and dwells inside of you. It will be far better with my spirit in you than than you are with me walking beside you. If you turn back one page in your Bible to John 14, you'll kind of get after this where Jesus addresses some of the things. You look at verse 16 of chapter 14. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him, but you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. He's referring there to the Holy Spirit. He's saying this is the essence of the Christian life as we journey through this world right now. It's not about having Jesus beside us. It's about having the Holy Spirit within us, and that makes all the difference. And so all that you're going to read in John chapter 15 speaks of that what life looks like when the Spirit is working in you and when you see yourself in Christ and in relationship with your God. And so a guy by the name of Sinclair Ferguson said one of the most powerful things I've, I've ever read about the Holy Spirit. You read this a moment ago. Let me share it with you again. He says, having the spirit is the equivalent of having the incarnate, obedient, crucified, resurrected, and exalted Christ indwelling us so that we are united to him as he is united to the Father. This is what, we get, that's what we're getting after when we talk about inhabit. We're talking about making our home in Christ because the spirit of Christ has made his home in us. And so we are in him, he is in us, this is where we live. We don't live for Christ, we live in Christ, and it makes all the difference to our Christianity and to the fruitfulness of our lives. So pick up beginning in verse 1 of chapter 15. Again, it's going to be a slow stroll. We're just going to take a couple of verses today. But notice what Jesus says right off the bat. He says, I am the true vine. And you can stop right there because, again, this is a slow stroll. He says, I am the true vine. Now, when he says that, Understand that Jesus is setting up a contrast. He's setting himself apart from the people around him. He's saying this as he's en route to uh, the temple where he's going to be eventually arrested, tried, and crucified. But he's hanging out in Jerusalem and he's surrounded by the people of Israel. If you were to read through the Old Testament, you're going to see on multiple occasions Israel being described as a vine. 
And as God's vine in the world, they were to be a fruitful people. That the role Israel had to play was to showcase what righteousness and justice, what peace, what life with God should look like. But Israel wasn't a very good vine. They didn't do a very good job. In fact, all the times vine is talked about in the Old Testament is talked about in a negative sense. That they didn't do a very good job. They weren't a very fruitful vine. They were actually a fruitless vine. I'll give you one example. Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5 kind of talks about these dynamics. And listen to what it says. The the prophet Isaiah writes, I will sing about the one I love, a song about my loved one's vineyard. The one I love had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He broke up the soil, cleared it of stones, and planted it with the finest vines. He built a tower in the middle of it and even dug out a wine press there. He expected it to yield good grapes, but it yielded worthless grapes. So now, residents of Jerusalem and men of Judah, please judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I did? Why, when I expected a yield of good grapes, did it yield worthless grapes? Now I tell you, what, what I'm about to do to my vineyard, I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will tear down its walls and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland and it will not be pruned or weeded. Thorns and briars will grow up. I will also give orders to the clouds that rain should not fall on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of armies is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, the plant he delighted in. He expected justice but saw injustice. He expected righteousness but heard cries of despair. You see, when God redeemed Israel from Egypt and led them to the promised land and planted them there as his vine in the world, they were to bear the fruit of righteousness and justice. But they did not bear that good fruit. They did not show the world what God is like in that regard. Instead, they bore what was called worthless grapes. They were not a fruitful people. And that was the case back in Isaiah's day and all throughout the Old Testament. And when Jesus steps onto the scene in the first century, that's the case in his day as well. Israel is still a fruitless people. But there is a difference between Isaiah's day and there's a difference between Jesus' day. In Isaiah's day, the reason why Israel failed to be fruitful was because they were a compromised people. They were a compromised people. They found themselves under the influence of people who did not know God and did not know the Lord more so than they were actually influencing them. And so they didn't showcase righteousness and justice as a result. So they were a compromised people in the Old Testament, but when you get to the first century, you know what happened? Because they were compromised in the Old Testament, God uprooted them and he disciplined them and he came down hard on them for some reasons. He sent them into exile and all these types of things. And, and they, found, they learned that all of that happened because they had compromised so many things about who they were called to be. That by the time Jesus' day rolled around, the pendulum swung from being a compromised people. They swung all the way to this side and they became a calloused people. They became a hard-hearted people. They became a loveless people. This is why the Pharisees were the religious rulers and the religious leaders in Jesus' day. They were the biggest influencers in the first century. And so the pendulum swung from being a compromised, fruitless people to being a calloused, fruitless people. And so the vine that God designed in his people just wasn't bearing fruit for both of these reasons. And this is the environment that Jesus steps onto the scene in. And he says, look, I'm the true vine. You guys were created to bear the fruit of righteousness and justice, ultimately to create a culture of salvation for the world to come and find God and to know what God is like, and you're missing it because on one hand, you're compromising everything about your faith, and then on the other hand, you are so calloused with everything in your faith. You don't love people. You don't 
point to grace. You don't have mercy. And so the pendulum just swings. You know, you can be a compromised Christian or you can be a callous Christian. We can be a compromised church or we can be a calloused church. Whether we're compromised or calloused, we are fruitless and we're not abiding in Christ. I think most churches swing along that pendulum. Some are compromised. They don't believe in Scripture. They don't believe the gospel. They, they move in that direction. Others are calloused where they just hate the world that they're in. And they don't love people. And you can hear Christians sometimes talking just about how, how bad the world is and how bad the culture is. And they're so callous that they can't carve out a voice of influence in the world. But Jesus steps onto the scene and he says, look, I'm the true vine. I've come to create a culture of salvation within a new people. And this new people is going to be made up of those who come and find their habitat in me. Those who connect with me, those who have relationship with me, then the fruits of righteousness and justice is going to blossom out of their lives. And he would go even further. You get into Galatians chapter 5. And he would say the fruit of the Holy Spirit would bloom in us as well. That we would be people marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, long-suffering, self-control. That that would be evident within our community. And when the fruit of the Spirit is evident, that's when you make an impact. But that's only going to happen to the point where we stop trying to live for Christ and we start living in Christ. It's only going to happen when we reject compromise and we reject callousness and we just sink into Christ. That's where we were created to live. That's our habitat, us in him and him in us. This is what Jesus is clarifying when he says, I am the true vine. He's saying, look, I am the one that you can connect with to find life. I am the one that you can connect with to find lasting, eternal life change. So he identifies himself that way. I am the true vine. But then he goes on. And he says, and my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not produce fruit, he removes. He prunes every branch that produces fruit so that it will produce more fruit. And so here's the difference. Jesus is the true vine. His father, he says, is the gardener. And the gardener is the one who plants the vine, who cultivates the vine, who tends to the vine. The gardener is the one who is at work to make sure fruit is blossoming. The gardener is the one who is at work to make sure life is flourishing from the branches that are synced in and connected with the vine. Now, two things I want to put before you about what the gardener is doing. When you read this passage, you have two groups of people. You are some who... Uh, are, are not really grafted into the vine. These are branches that aren't producing fruit, and he's removing them. Then you got others that are producing fruit, and he's pruning them. So on one hand, the gardener is examining branches to see if they are in Christ. So he's examining the branches to see if we are, in fact, in Christ. You see, it's possible for a branch just to be resting upon a vine but not really grafted into it. And if it's just rested up against the vine, it's not going to produce much life. It's not going to be very fruitful. In order for that branch to bear fruit, it has to be grafted in. There has to be a vital, organic connection between the two. So the question then for Christians who are maybe running in the church and they're wondering, you know, uh, what is my life about? What, do I have a vital relationship with Christ or do I just have a formal relationship with Christ? You see, when you swing in that pendulum from compromise to callousness, the res it's probably a result of someone just having a formal religious relationship with Christ. It's the result of people in churches that are resting up against Jesus. They have the trappings of Christianity, buildings, Bibles, chairs, music, all these types of things. But they're not grafted into the vine. 
They don't have a vital connection. They just have a formal or religious connection. And we're told here that the gardener can't be fooled, that he's walking, he's attending to the gardener. He's saying, look, any branch that's not bearing fruit, he's going to remove. It's going to show itself one day that those who aren't bearing fruit now will not bear fruit in, in eternity. And so this is the warning here that God is walking through here. He is the gardener who is examining branches to find out if we are really in Christ. Now, there are some ways that you can kind of discern and just examine your life to see whether or not you have a vital connection or just a formal connection to Christ. If you have a vital connection, two things are going to grow in you. You're going to grow in the directions of love and obedience. You're going to grow in the direction of love and obedience. You see, a Christian isn't simply a pleasant person. We are pleasant people if the fruit of the Spirit is growing in us, but that's not what we are. A Christian is someone who's actually falling in love with God. They are loving God. They have affections for God. They, they feel warmly about who God is. And because they love God, they want to spend time with God. They want to talk to God. They want to listen to God. They want to spend time with him, just like any husband wants to spend time with his wife because he loves her, and vice versa. This is the dynamic. If we are vitally connected to Christ, we have a love for God that is growing in our hearts, and we're going to want to be with him. And not only are we going to want to be with him, if this love is growing within us, we're going to want to obey him. We're going to want to do what he says, not because we have to. We're going to want to do what he says because we want to, because we love him. Now, I love the movie The Princess Bride. Uh, you've probably seen that old school flick, The Princess Bride, where you have Wesley who, who's in love with Princess Buttercup. And every time Princess Buttercup tells him to do something or uh, asks him to do something, his response is the same every time. He says, as you wish, as you wish. And that refrain echoes over and over and over again in that movie. Now, shouldn't that be the heart's response to the God that we love? He tells us to do something. What do we say? Well, as you wish. We want to obey God because we love God. We don't. Christian obedience isn't about doing things because we have to. It's not about doing things because uh, we're worried about things going bad for us if we don't. No, Christian obedience is about walking in a love, clo a close, intimate, loving relationship with God. And because of that, you want to obey him. You want to honor him. You want to do what he says. And this is what branches that are grafted into the vine will do. They bloom the fruit of love and obedience. So let me ask you this. How do you read the commands of Scripture? When you're reading through the New Testament and you hear a command and you're told to do something or you're told not to do something, how do you see those commands? How do you see that law, so to speak? Well, if you are grafted into Christ and if your love and obedience is growing in your relationship with, with God, you're going to learn to see those commands as a treasure trove of gifts that you can pillage to bring to the one that you love. You're not going to see those commands as, as burdensome, cumbersome obligations that just damper life. No, you're going to see those as ways in which you can show love to your God. As we are grafted into Christ, vital relationship, love and obedience begins to grow. That's the fr fruit that is coming. And we find ourselves saying to the Lord, as you wish, as you wish, as you wish. Of course, this is a process. I don't think anybody lives in that rhythm all the days of their Christianity. It's a process as we, the more we nurture that relationship, the more we grow in that direction. And so here we find, we're told that the gardener is examining to see what branches are actually grafted in 
the vine, the true vine. But then the second thing, and this may be the hardest part of the passage, not only is he examining branches, we're told that he's pruning branches so that those branches can flourish in Christ. He's pruning branches. Now, I'm told uh, by those who work in vineyards and those who do other things in those type of environments, they say that pruning is the most important work for a gardener. It's the most important work for anyone in the occupation of causing fruit or vegetation or anything to grow. So you think about that. Pruning is one of the most important, but if we look at what's being said here, pruning is also the things that's most scary. Because what we're being told that the gardener is pruning is you and me. That he's pruning the branches. He's saying, look, yeah, you're growing fruit, but much more can come. And so I'm going to get out my shears, I'm going to get out my clippers, and I'm going to do some cutting. And that's kind of scary. That's kind of frightening. We don't like that, but if you think about it, that's just the way life is in this world. Most anything that becomes beautiful or strong, they go through some type of pruning or challenging process. Gold has to be burned so that its impurities can be fleshed out, right? Athletes have to be challenged and stretched and pushed to go further and further and further if they're really going to tap into if everything is going to be unlocked and unleashed in their physical abilities. Children, if you have kids, you know that children have to be disciplined so that weeds don't, so that they don't become wild weeds, right? So you have to do the hard work of disciplining a child and helping them grow into fruitful, formative, mature adults. And you know every kid that's ever been disciplined, they think it's the end of the world. You know, you, you tell a kid that they're, they're no more Netflix for a while. They're, they're going to they're gonna melt down. They're going to think life is over, that the world is done. Because that's what it feels like. Well, if you're listening to this passage and if the gardener is pruning every branch so that we might flourish in Christ, you understand what he's saying. He's saying that God the Father is actually at work in our lives to cut us, to clip us, so that we might go, and when he cuts us or clips us, it oftentimes feels like the end of the world. It oftentimes feels like everything is done. Can we trust the gardener if he's taking this from us? Can we trust the gardener if he's clipping that out of my life? I mean, some of you are here today, and you know this very well. You're you're bleeding in a 100 different places. You have lots of cuts in your life, stuff that's been cut off and cut out of your life. You're, you're living in a world of might have beens, and you're thinking, well, well, what would have my life had been if I would have made this decision, or if that decision would have happened, or this would have gone through? And you have a hundred different cuts on you, and you're bleeding in all kinds of ways, shapes, and forms, and you don't know if you can really trust the gardener. You have dreams, dreams that you've scripted for yourself that you thought, well, if I'm going to be happy, this dream has to be fulfilled, but God hasn't given it to me yet. In fact, he seems to be doing everything but leading me in that direction. He seems to be clipping it and cutting it out of my life, and it hurts and it sucks, and I feel like the world is coming to an end. You understand, if the gardener is doing this type of work, and if we understand who the Father is, you can rest assured that nothing that's cut out of your loss, that he cuts nothing out of our lives that, we could, that would be a loss for us. And he cuts nothing out of our lives that... If we have them, it would be a gain to lose. That the gardener's only doing what's necessary to make us the most fruitful people as possible. And sometimes that means he says no to things you're asking for. Sometimes that means he's shutting doors that you want to walk through. Sometimes that means he's cutting and clipping things out of your life so that the fruit of the Holy Spirit may Grow, But how do you respond in those moments? How do you respond when he is 
pruning you in these ways? Well, I think first you need, you need to learn that he does these types of things. You need to learn that the gardener works in these kinds of ways. And, and when he's clipping things out, you learn and you remember that life doesn't come through whatever it is he's removing. That that's not the source of life for you. So if you were seeking to graft yourself into X, Y, or Z, and he cuts it out, suddenly you learn, well, that's not where my life is found. My life is found in Christ. This is where I'm drawing life from. So you want to learn that. But then secondly, you want to trust that. You want to trust the gardener's agenda. Anytime the gardener cuts things out of our lives, it's ultimately for our good. And we have to trust the gardener's agenda that what he wants for us is fruitfulness. And so he's not going to cut anything out of our lives that, that we need in order for that to happen. So we want to trust the gardener's agenda. Now, one of the reasons why it's hard for us to do that, we have a hard time trusting in the gardener's agenda is because uh, we've written our own agenda and we have a difficulty mistrusting our own. We have a hard time mis, um, <laughs> not trusting in our own judgment, our own assessment of what life should be like and of what, where life should go. But if we're really going to become fruitful, if we're going to see what the gardener is doing, we have to trust that his agenda is ultimately better than ours. And so we trust. And then in the end, what do we do is we obey, right? When you're under the knife... And he starts clipping and cutting things out of your life. What do you do? You cling to the vine. You sink into your relationship with Christ. And you begin to obey by inhabiting or abiding in Christ, which is what we're going to talk about over and over and over again the next few weeks. So you think about being connected to Christ and having the Father as the gardener of your life. Is this means that there is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no struggle that isn't going to be productive for your life in the end. This is why Romans 8.28 would say God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. All things means all things, good and bad. When God is patting us on the back and when God is pruning our lives, it's ultimately going to be worked together for our good. There's no such thing as unproductive suffering. There's no such thing as unproductive discipline or pruning activity in our lives. So what do we do? We learn, we trust, we obey because the gardener prunes branches that they might flourish in Christ. Now, when we say this, understand that we are basically saying that we are going to go the way of the vine. We're saying that the gardener is doing the same thing in us that he ultimately did in Christ for us. I mean, you think about Jesus. You've you got to remember that the gardener is the one who sent the true vine into the world. He is the one who planted the true vine in Jerusalem. He's the one who raised him and nurtured him and provided for him and guided him as he grew and developed in this world. He's the one who preserved him all the way to the point of the Garden of Gethsemane where he would step in and he would pray through the will of his father. It is the gardener who was leading him in the direction of the cross where Jesus, the true vine, would ultimately be cut down. Where Jesus, the true vine, would ultimately be clipped and pruned. And you think about Jesus' journey, you know that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. And you know that Jesus trusted his father's agenda. So that he said, look, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he was sweating drops of blood, weeping through the will of his father, he said, if there's any other way for, for your purpose to be fulfilled, let it happen. But then in the end, he said, ultimately, not my will, but you, what you will be done. What was he doing? He was trusting the father's agenda. And he was saying, father, your agenda is greater than my agenda 
And if your agenda means I must be pruned on the cross, then I'm going to go. And so he learned obedience through suffering. He trusted in his father's agenda, and then he was obedient all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. And when Jesus was dying on that cross, you remember that moment where he breathed his last breath, and he cried out those incredible words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, he was being cut. In that moment, he was being clipped. In that moment, he was being pruned so that he might become the true vine who upholds righteousness and justice and establishes a culture of salvation in the world through all who would trust in him, through all who would find life in him, through all who see that what Christ did for them, because of what Christ did for them, they want Christ to live within them. And so they put their faith in him and they trust him. This is what we do. This is what it's going to mean for you and I to abide in Christ, to trust in what he did for us, to rest in the fact that he learned and he trusted and he obeyed so that you and I can be clipped in this world and know that being clipped in this world isn't going to crush us. To be clipped in this world isn't to be condemned in this world because we're trusting the Savior. We're grafted in the vine. So we press in and we persevere through all that we experience in this world. Now, this is important for you to realize because there are a lot of folks who suggest that once you become a Christian, all of a sudden you're going to be elevated to a plane where you transcend all the pain and the struggle and the hardships of life. And they will sometimes communicate that. If you're a Christian, then you're not going to hurt. You're not going to experience harm or disappointment in any way, shape, or form. And that's a lie. It's not true. I love what a guy by the name of Parker Palmer says when he describes the dynamic of spirituality. And he talks about the spiritual journey as about engaging life as it is. And listen to what he says. He says, the spiritual journey is an endless process of engaging life as it is. Stripping away our illusions about ourselves, our world, and the relationship of the two. Moving closer to reality as we do. That process begins with losing the illusion that spirituality will float us above the daily fray. Reality may be hard, but it's a safer place to live than in our illusions, which will always, always fail us. You see, when you're grafted into the vine, you can deal with the world that is as it is. You don't have to walk living in your illusions. You can deal with the realities of life, the hardships of life, the struggles of life, the strippings of life. And you can believe that all of that can be used for your ultimate good so that God's goals for you may be fulfilled. And you can become someone where much fruit, much fruit is growing. Let's pray in that direction.